This is Speaking of the Economy, a podcast hosted by the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. In each episode, we'll hear firsthand from the Richmond Fed's economists and other experts about the issues they're exploring, access to credit, to workforce development, to regional differences in economic outcomes. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond or the Federal Reserve System. I'm Jesse Romero, Director of Publications for the Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Thanks for listening to Speaking of the Economy, which you can subscribe to in Apple Podcasts. We have a great lineup of episodes planned for this summer on topics ranging from deficit spending to wage inflation to the future of work. We'll also be sharing the stories of rural communities throughout our district that have embraced innovative redevelopment projects. We're taking a brief hiatus this week to get this new content ready for you. In the meantime, we hope you'll enjoy this presentation by Laura Ulrich, the Richmond Fed's regional economist based in Charlotte. She spoke about wage, income, and wealth inequality, issues that were brought into high relief during the COVID-19 pandemic. Her talk was recorded at the Traveler's Aid International Conference in June 2019. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon with new episodes in July. So we're going to start with wage inequality. Um, This is one of the graphs that I used to like to show my students a lot uh, when I was a professor. This shows wages and productivity. So if you look on the far left, this is wages and productivity in 1950. And the blue line is hourly compensation, and the red line is net productivity. So until about the mid-70s, if productivity went up, which productivity is basically how much a worker can make in an hour, if productivity went up, we saw wages go up as well. But then in the mid-1970s, we saw these start to diverge, and they've diverged quite a bit since that time. So the question then may be, what happened? What happened to cause this gap? There's a couple of things that happened, but one of the primary things is actually tax policy. Anybody know in 2019 what the highest marginal tax rate is? <laughs> so it changed in all fairness with the new law. It's 37%. If you're in the top tax bracket and you make a dollar, you got to give 37 cents to the federal government. Now that doesn't count what you have to give to the state government or pay another, you know, sales taxes, things like that. But in terms of federal income taxes, if you make an extra dollar, you have to pay 37 cents to the government. Does anybody know what that rate was in 1963? It was 91%. So think about for a minute how that changes CEO behavior, for example. From a CEO's perspective, today I've got an extra dollar. If I pay it to myself... From the federal standpoint, I'm going to get to keep 63 cents, right? In 1963, I would keep nine cents. That changes what you do with the dollar. So sometimes you'll see the statistic on um, CEO pay and how that gap has changed over time. Now CEOs are paid quite um, a lot more in terms of a multiple of their average employee than they were at that time. In my opinion, and that is a big part of what changed behavior is tax. I'm not saying that the highest marginal tax rate should be 91%, by the way. I'm not saying that. But I do think it changed behavior a lot. Um, the other thing that changed was maybe just an exception that this inequality exists. So now we don't expect 
productivity to keep up, or wages to keep up with productivity anymore. So just that kind of general expectation can exacerbate the problem. So this um, shows the gap in wages. The red line is the top 0.1% of income earners, okay? So this is the 99.9 the percentile. Um, the blue is the top 1%, and the green, which you can barely see, is the bottom 90%. The gap uh, narrowed during the recession between 2007 and 2009. That green line, you'll notice, it kind of remains the same. So their wages aren't going to change that much during the recession. Um, or during an expansion, but you can see the red line shrunk quite a bit during a recession because um, it tends to hit people with higher incomes um, in terms of wages it, um, in a way that does narrow that gap during a recession, but you can also see that we've almost built back up to where we were before. Um, so we're almost back to the pre-recessionary wage gap that we saw in 2007. So wages... Um, there is definitely inequality, uh, but we don't typically think of wage inequality creating the sort of economic issues that, that we talk, we'll talk about with income and wealth inequality. However, I will say, and I'll come back to this later, you have to make a decent wage to earn a decent income to accumulate wealth, right? So it is a step in that process. So let's look at the, the data on income inequality. So the first thing here is the Gini coefficient, which is a rather complicated mathematical um, concept that measures inequality. But just to, to simplify it uh, quickly, it, perfect income equality would be a Gini coefficient of zero. So if you had a zero Gini coefficient, that would mean everybody had the exact same income. Perfect inequality would be a Gini coefficient of one. So the closer you are to one, the more unequal your incomes are. And in the United States, so this breaks it down um, from 1970 to 2016, which is the most recent data we have on this. It breaks it down by race. And what you'll see is overall and in every racial category, incomes have become less equal over this time period. The inequality in the United States is getting worse. Um, this shows the amount of income taken in by the bottom 90%, the top 10%, the top 5%, top 1%, and top 0.1% in the United States each year. This is incomes, average income, and the richest 0.1% have 188 times as much income as the bottom 90% in total. The top 1% make 39 times more income than the bottom 90%. The top 10% now average income more than nine times as much as the bottom 90%. So let's look at wealth inequality. These two graphs show you the difference in income inequality and wealth inequality. So this is um, before tax income in 2016. The top 1% made 24% of the income. Okay. But in terms of wealth, they had 39% of the wealth. The next 9% had 39% of the wealth. So you add those together, 78% of the wealth was held by the top 10%. And then the bottom 90%, in terms of income, they're making 50%. But in terms of wealth, they only have 23%. Much of this is because wealth is accumulated income over time, right, plus the, the growth in the value of those assets. 
So if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you know, even a family of four making $52,000 a year, they're barely considered middle income. They're not going to be saving a lot of money, right? They're not going to be accumulating a lot of wealth. So the people who are able to accumulate this wealth tend to be in the top percent of income earners. So there's a lot of reasons for these gaps, and I can really, I only have time to really focus on three of them today. The first is going to be regional patterns, so geography. Or the last two are going to be ones that you've heard a lot about in the past. One is race gaps, which will follow very closely with what Bob talked about this morning, and then also gender gaps, which also gets a lot of uh, press and political attention. There is brand new research that has come out of a, a graduate student at Harvard, actually, in Duca. He just published this this year, where he looked at the regional patterns of commuting zones. In 1980, less than 12% of Americans lived in metro areas that had mean family income, either less than 80% of the national average or greater than 120%. 88% of people in 1980 lived in a commuting zone where they were between 80th percentile and 120th percentile, which means on average people are kind of middle class. By 2013, um, this had grown to over 30%, so they nearly tripled over that period of time. And what he found was that this regional divergence was actually driven by inequality. And that was what he was testing was, is this just natural migration patterns? Is it weather? Is it, what is it? And what he found is it was primarily driven by inequality. And he found that if inequality had remained constant between 1980 and 2013, income sorting would have resulted in 77% less divergence than was seen. Also, if no income sorting occurred, so that means people are not moving to other areas because of income inequality, the growth in, in income inequality alone would have resulted in 53% of the observed income divergence. I think the most important conclusion he finds is that spatial inequality, so when I say spatial, by, by geography, okay? So spatial inequality of any type can exacerbate itself. So if you have a space, a geography, that has significant inequality over time, it is likely that that inequality will continue to get worse and worse and worse. So what Manduka is saying happens over time is that this sorting continues to occur. People who can leave are more likely to leave. Those are likely to be people that have above median income. This leads to all sorts of issues. Um, people may have to move further away to get to areas of employment. If the area is right around a place like Charlotte get very expensive, people have to start moving further and further out. They may have to move farther away from their family structure. Some of you in this room are probably like me and don't live near any family and know that that is harder, right? It's harder to live where you don't have that support system on average. Some communities actually are facing significantly declining populations, um, and some of these are even in states that are growing rapidly, right? I live in South Carolina. South Carolina is growing very rapidly. There are counties in South Carolina that are shrinking every single day. As they shrink, their tax base shrinks, and so the services they're able to provide shrink. 
that leads to the concept of brain drain, which I hate that term. I think it just sounds awful, but it is a real thing, right? These places in South Carolina that are shrinking when I go down and visit them and I ask, where are your highest performing students going? They say, out of here. They're leaving. And I'll say, do they come back? Nope. Not unless they have to. You talk to your average college student and ask them, where do they want to live after they graduate? They're going to live cities where they think of as having really good employment opportunities. That's also not necessarily great for those places everyone's moving to, right? Because that also puts strains on them. So the increased population density in other areas lead to issues such as longer commute times. I don't know if any of you are in here from Atlanta, but I'm from outside of Atlanta. And I watched that commute time just steadily increase my, my whole life as more and more people moved in. Also, it could be increased crime, lack of affordable housing, environmental degradation, and increased pressure on services and amenities that, that cities have. The next are, um, are race gaps. And you hear a lot about this um, if, you, if you read Popular Press and, and listen to NPR. Or, these are really sobering facts. This is from an article in 2017. It's based on 2016 data. For every $100 earned by a white family, black families earn just $57.30. That's in income. But wealth is extremely different. For every $100 in fam white family wealth, black families own just $5.04. That absolutely can be traced back to everything that Bob was talking about. Well, I've never seen the Monopoly example, but that's a great example, right? You come into the game and everybody's bought up all the land and the hotels and, and the houses. Um, it's not very fun to play the game. So that's actually a really good analogy um, as these families try to build wealth. According to the most recent Federal Reserve Survey of Consumer Finances from 2016, so white families have a median um, 171,000 in net wealth, and black families is 17,000. Interestingly, Hispanic families are higher at 21,000. This next statistic is another statistic that I use a lot in my classroom because I, I teach on a lot of these policies and issues surrounding income inequality. The Forbes 400 richest families. Some of these families are Hispanic, some of these families are black, okay? They're not all white families. But the 400 richest families in the United States own more wealth than all black households plus a quarter of the Hispanic households. And with this wealth also comes a lot of power and influence, right? And also black families are 20 times more likely to have zero or negative net worth than they are to have over a million dollars in assets. So there is no doubt that a very significant race gap exists. There's absolutely no doubt about it. What, as an economist, I find really concerning is that it is getting worse. It's getting worse. There's some other statistics that would make you think that median net wealth um, should be increasing. But I have a few ideas of what may be um, causing that. I think part of it are stagnated wages. We've looked at the, the fact that wages at the very top have increased. But if you go and look at Fortune 500 CEOs right now, you're not going to find many people are color or many women. It's, it's mostly white males still. Um, and so that incomes for, for people at the top have increased, but not so much um, below that. Um, I do also think tax policy becoming less progressive um, causes some of this as well. Speaking of the Economy is produced by the Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. 
You can subscribe to the podcast on the Apple Podcasts app or download past episodes from our website at richmondfed.org slash speakingoftheeconomy. Want to know more about the issues that the Richmond Fed has been exploring? Check out our regional focus, a series of curated web pages that showcase economic research and data, reports and essays, and community engagement endeavors relevant to 5th District communities. Just look for the links on the homepage at richmondfed.org. The intro music for this podcast was composed by Ernest Barbaric, and the sound effect used in the intro was produced by Keith Holzman. The outro music was by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. <laughs>